Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Scott Thumma to the show. Scott Thumma is Professor of Sociology of Religion and Director of the Hartford Institute for Religion Research at Hartford International University in Hartford, Connecticut. He has published numerous articles, research reports, and chapters on religious life, in addition to co-authoring three books. He has researched and written on megachurches, evangelicalism, gay religious life, congregational studies, and the rise of non-denominational churches along with the changing religious landscape. Scott is the principal investigator for the five-year Lilly Endowment Grant to study the impact of the pandemic on churches. He co-leads the Faith Communities Today National Research Project and has conducted national studies of megachurches in non-denominational churches. He is also a member of the team that recently conducted the 2020 U.S. Religious Census of U.S. Congregations. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Scott Thumma. Thank you so much for your time today and looking forward to this conversation. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Well, um, as, as you said, I'm uh, a researcher at Hartford International University and the director of the Hartford Institute, which uh, has uh, studied congregational life and denominational life for uh, 45 years or so. And I, I myself have, have looked at how congregations are changing uh, now over the last 30 plus years. And, um, you know, what we're, what we're seeing now is, is a pretty interesting uh, and challenging time. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's really exciting, uh, but also sometimes a little depressing. Uh, yeah. But, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great career and, and I, I love doing the, the work and the research that we do. Yeah, great. Share, if you would, a little bit about your faith journey, what that looked like in the past and what that looks like today. Sure. Uh, sometimes I feel like I was born a sociologist of religion. Uh, mm. I, I I grew up in uh, an uh, independent Baptist church, a relatively small um, uh, conservative congregation in, in central Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. um, but but even from a fairly early age, but especially by by uh, junior high school, high school, I, I was asking the kinds of questions like, why are we worshiping the way we are? When I see some of my friends or go go visit a girlfriend's church or something, and mm-hmm. they do things differently, and 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 that has uh, really uh, compelled a, a lot of my own faith journey, both. Uh, both personally in, in my relationship with God, but also uh, in my relationship with uh, congregations and denominations, and 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 so consequently, I have moved from one denomination, one congregation to another uh, throughout the course of my life. Probably belong to 
30 different congregations uh, over time and, and uh, maybe a dozen <laughs> different denominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was uh, at a Methodist college and then uh, went to Candler, which is a Methodist seminary. Uh, and, and so belonged to a Methodist church for a while. I belonged to a disciples church for a while. I belonged to a number of charismatic fellowships over time. I also, uh, belonged, uh, to a couple different non-denominational churches. And mm-hmm. I, I, but I really, in some sense have never left, <laughs> uh, what I think of as, as my roots in hmm. independent Baptist, which was, mm-hmm. you know, what really matters is the congregation you're a part of more so than a denomination you're a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that has always sort of guided uh, my direction. W- once I became uh, a social science researcher of congregational life, uh, that, that kind of took precedent <laughs> to, to my own <laughs> uh, yeah. connection to a congregation because I find myself in, in many different congregations throughout the year uh, and and also when when you do this job, and I would guess when you do church consulting and things, it's right. it's really hard to belong to one congregation because that congregation wants you to help and they want you right. to consult and and you know that's not always why you go to worship in, in, a, yeah. in a faith group and and so um, it's it makes it a little harder to have my own home, but. Sometimes I think of it as as much more expansive. It allows me to have multiple homes um, mm-hmm. to to experience the the variety of religious expressions. Uh, I mm-hmm. I love I, I've studied megachurches most of my career. I I love that kind of contemporary worship, uh, kind of lively and exciting. Yeah. But I also uh, love being in African American congregations. I live in New England now and. There's not a whole lot of, of that. I get I get more right. uh, United Church of Christ and right. Episcopal, but but um, but I really flourish on the 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 multiple ways that people um, craft their worship and and their relationship with God. So uh, I I really am a, a kind of sociologist at heart in some ways. Yeah, something. Sociologists, y'all are my favorite people to talk to just because your amount of nerdiness. I don't know if you've come across um, Todd Ferguson, oh, also yeah. a sociologist of religion. He, he's and actually he, uh, part of our uh, pandemic research that we're doing. He, he, I had him on along with Josh Packer, and he talks about oh, like taking Josh. notes in high school, you know, going to church. Like, I'm a church nerd, and I'm not near that level of nerdiness. So <laughs> I appreciate you sociologists. Any spiritual practices that you found meaningful or important for you uh, in your life or of late? Yeah. Um, well, that's, throughout my life, I, I, uh, went, I mean, early on, clearly reading the Bible, going to mm-hmm. church, you know, uh, the, the typical sort of growing up in the church kinds of practices. But by the time I became a young adult, uh, I... Uh, spent a good bit of time in Korea. I was in the military uh, for a while, and um, that introduced me, a- along with uh, Foster's book on on spiritual practices and some other stuff, uh, to uh, 
the practice of journaling, uh, to mm-hmm. the practice of, of paying attention to my dreams, uh, mm-hmm. and also then got uh, really into fasting actually for uh, mm-hmm. quite quite a long period and. Uh, have done 30-day fast and a 40-day fast and, and a number wow. of two-week-long fasts. And uh, that was that was when I was younger. Um, family and some other things uh, took took the place of some of that. And in fact, I, I actually had uh, a uh, spiritual life retreat with a colleague uh, when we were in uh, seminary for young adults who, who were in 12-step programs. And hmm. they would they would learn about you know the higher powers and all that sort of thing. And so what we tried to do was introduce them to spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices that would allow them. We we couldn't teach them about right. a particular religion, but right. we could give them some of these spiritual practices that would help them maybe ground um, some of what they were trying to do with twelve steps. Now uh, I've I've gotten back into uh, some journaling, but especially uh, uh, paying attention to my dreams and and increasingly um, doing a lot of long walks and hmm. and and spending time kind of listening and being attentive and and intentional about uh, spending time outside and and kind of away from computers, away from, yeah. you know, stimulation. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. Thanks for sharing that. So I had Dr. Uh, Thumb on to talk about, we're going to kind of just nerd out, at least I am, listening to you talking about some of your areas of study here and some topics related there. So you mentioned mega churches off the top, and that's certainly an area of interest that I have. And I think, let me frame it from this. Like I just got the the mailer kind of community neighborhood magazine and on the front cover is the Christmas Eve service for the, the mega church here within five, seven miles from me. And it's, it's the great marketing, you know, they're talking about like win prizes and fun for the whole family. And, you know, yeah, I have mixed feelings about this, we'll say. Right. Um, but also I kind of recognize like this is where the world's at. And, and, the, and the question I want to ask kind of on this is, from my perspective at least, in the broader economy, we're really seeing this trend of just like size and growth as everything. Like maybe – and maybe this will change with like the, the, the era of like low interest rates gone. But it seemed like every company was just – was sacrificing even profitability for the sake of growth. And once they get that growth, they can kind of just dominate the marketplace. So is is this make a church model, is this really just an outgrowth of the modern economy? Well, I um I, I wouldn't say just, but uh, but I think okay. that's part that's part of what has uh fueled the megachurch movement since Mm-hmm. the 1960s 1970s and and certainly onward uh right there's a there's a real congruence between what the mega churches offer and what disney offers and what the malls offer and mm-hmm. uh and you know large corporations and such too um so i i mean i think you can't divorce it from the context that it's in for sure but right. but there's also this larger change that has been happening both to America, uh, stay with America, both to American society, but 
but also then reflected in uh, our religious reality. And, and that is as um, the populations have both increased in the United States, but also moved from rural areas, small towns into mm-hmm. concentrated metropolitan areas, what mm-hmm. we've seen is um, a, a diminishment in some sense of small congregations yeah. and and this increasing concentration in the larger congregations. Now, that doesn't just mean megachurches, um, mm-hmm. but the top 10% of churches in the country have about 70% of the people. Right. I know. It's top, it's, it's top actually 10%. hard to believe. Yeah. Top so, 10% have 70% of people? Yep. So there's about 350,000 congregations in the country f- based on the U.S. religion census data that just came out recently that I, I was actually a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that about 35,000 congregations in the country have uh, uh, about 70% of all the people. Wow. Um, now... If I ask you where where's that cutoff for uh, the top ten percent, mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you'll get it wrong. <laughs> it's it's actually two hundred and fifty people in attendance. Okay, mm-hmm. so it that's not very big, <laughs> right? Um, but between two hundred and fifty and you know thirty forty thousand in the in the largest one in the country, uh, that really is a relatively small number of churches. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But but that's that's where all the people have concentrated to, and that that includes Catholic, uh, that also includes non Christian. But um, but it but it really, I mean, obviously is dominated by Christian congregations. But mm-hmm. but that most people don't perceive that. I mean, even though most people are in big churches, and by big I might mean three hundred, uh, they don't think of that as big. But they also don't realize that about 90% of congregations in the U.S. are are significantly smaller. The median size, which is the mm-hmm. midway point between uh, that 350,000, is now, uh, based on our most recent data, 60 people in attendance. So mm-hmm. half the congregations in the country have 60 people in worship or less. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, you know, we don't see those, they're everywhere, <laughs> right. but, um, they're not making the news. <laughs> they're right. not doing the major, you know, uh, Christmas pageant. Uh, but they also support the AA meetings. They have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, soup kitchens and, and, and many faithful people. It's just not, um, the proportions are, are very, very uh, out of out of whack. I mean, it's like the you know uh, financial distribution in our country mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So let me ask this about mega churches because one thing, and this is gonna, I'm gonna frame this from an economic lens, like the classic economic principles of economies of scale and specialization of labor is obviously too to again use the economic framework, two economic advantages that a mega church has, or even frankly, a church of, like you said, top 10% church, if I'm understanding you right, is 250 people or more in attendance. Okay. So even if it's not a quote unquote mega church, it's going to be a, it's going to be a church of probably multiple staff members or paid 
uh, persons who work for the church clergy, at least like, and again, again, I'm kind of framing this through this kind of economic uh, market model here. Is that just a, is that just a, is that just an advantage that's just going to be continuing to be compelling this idea that like, you know, they have the specialization of labor so they can have, you know, a dedicated children's ministry. They can have dedicated women's ministry and men's ministry and, and on and on and on. And also like, because of the economies of scale, like it, obviously some mega church Christmas productions, like we've seen on social media are out of this world, right. but also because they're putting on five services, the economies of scale again, kind of balance out. So I guess what I'm wondering in this roundabout way, are we just going to keep seeing this? Are we going to keep seeing this dynamic of mega churches becoming like, and smaller churches dying out and mega churches or not mega churches, but you know, 250 plus churches yeah. becoming the norm? Well, I, I mean, I do, I do think that the concentration of people in congregate larger congregations is, is probably going to continue because I, mm-hmm. I, I don't see folks distributing out from right. urban areas. I mean, right. there was a little bit of that during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the advantages of being in a metropolitan area outweigh being out in a, a rural area. Right. That that doesn't mean that a lot of those small congregations are going to completely disappear. Right. Uh, there are some that will disappear, I think in the next 10, 20 years, but um, a small rural area can actually support a small church for yeah. ever. Yeah. Um, how, however, um, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, when you have a large congregation, uh, even of 500, what it can offer in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, outstanding worship, all of the uh, possible um, programs and activities for the whole family, um, really um, just small congregations can't, can't exactly compete head to head with that sort of reality. And, mm-hmm. and that's not even talking about once you get to two to five to 10,000. Right. But, but in some sense, um, I've, I've already seen in, in the couple decades that I've watched megachurches, m- megachurches have had gotten to a point, um, 15, 20 years ago where they were creating one large congregation and, and would pack in 5,000, right. 10,000. And, and what we've seen over the last decade or more is uh, a, a more distribu- distributed model. Yeah. And, and so in some sense, you're already seeing, it's not really a fragmentation of mm-hmm. that large because they still think of themselves as one whole. Right, but but you can't talk about life church or or right. any number of other. Yeah. In fact, almost eighty percent of mega churches now are multi site. Uh, multi site, so, yeah. Um, I I think there there are some different dynamics, but one of the things that the mega churches have, however they're structured, is they know that they have to do every aspect of uh, church life with mm. intentionality. Right, mm-hmm. they have to think about small groups. They have to think about how do we uh, onboard new people. They have to think about how do we structure our programs. 
And when you get to a congregation of 50 or 75 or 100, oftentimes they say, oh, well, this will happen naturally, right? A, a new person will will find their way in our congregation, right? Right. And and so it's it's done in a kind of informal, ad hoc manner. And and that may work, but it may not work. And mm-hmm. and that's where one of the things I think that smaller congregations can can learn from from yeah. larger. They have to do these things intentionally yeah. because our society has changed. That we're yeah. we're not as interconnected in the rest mm-hmm. of our lives as we once were. So, uh, you know, there's there there are some disadvantage clear disadvantages to the large right. scale worship but but there are also uh something lessons that all congregations could learn yeah because i i tend to listen to a lot of i shouldn't say a lot but some podcasts that are geared tend to be geared toward larger churches and obviously the big thing that i keep hearing again and again is like kind of the the paths like the it seems like big churches always offer this like path to like kind of it's like your step. I don't know what the word would be, but it's like follow these steps to kind of grow. And it's like a self-prescribed, That's right. That's right. you know? Yeah. The saddleback bases right. or right. any of those others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so kind of along with this, and you could correct me, uh, you could fine tune kind of how these two went in parallel is the rise in non-denominational churches. And I think this is interesting for me. Uh, I've been a part of the, um, Christian Church Disciples of Christ ordained 10 years this summer. I worked for a, a few different mainline churches. It, it, interestingly enough, we'll have to talk about this offline here, and grew up independent Baptist like you. Uh, so some familiarity with a lack of denominational structure. Um, but I think, I don't know, speaking for myself at least, like I feel like growing up independent Baptist, while there was very much that, like you said, this, congregational autonomy there was still some appreciation for the tradition at least of like the baptist tradition only the heritage yes yes right the heritage that's a better way of saying it um so and i'll just say like i went recently to a non-denom fairly progressive church to visit and i for me i found it like weird that i feel like this smorgasbord of traditions and things smushed together but obviously, like I seem to be in the minority. So, what's going on with non-denominationalism right now? Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, this is a major area of my work. Uh, when w- I was part of the U.S. Religion Census and realized uh, back in twenty oh five or something that mm-hmm. uh, that they hadn't done a very good count of non-denominational churches. So mm-hmm. in 2010, I tried to and found that that was actually, if that was a group, it would be the second largest grouping after the Southern Baptist. Wow. And, and in 2020, we tried again, and we've actually found that that grouping, if you could put them together, mm-hmm. um, has now eclipsed the Southern Baptist. So it, it's actually probably the largest Protestant reality. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I think you're right. I myself personally am, am not so inclined toward non-denominational life either. Um, but I'm, I'm not your typical consumer of, right. of congregational Mine life. Either. But, um, 
But I do, I mean, I do think there are some significant advantages, at least in in our modern context. Uh, yeah, clearly, denominational identity um, has has lost salience. Right. <laughs> uh, people don't understand it. I mean, folks, right. or they do understand it, and they're carrying around baggage. And so, if right. you say Episcopal, they right. have a picture, or you say Southern Baptist, they have they know what that mm-hmm. means. And and so. You know, you see denominational congregations shift away from emphasizing their denomination, changing mm-hmm. their names of their churches to Crossroads right. or to, you know, Brook Hollow <laughs> congregation. Um, but, but it also means that as we have increasing numbers of not, non-affiliated <laughs> uh, people, the, the nuns and such, or, or just folks who may be spiritual but never really grew up in a congregation those th- those identities don't mean anything and right. and so we're you know we're just a non-denominational church and when somebody asks what's that mean well you well you have to come see right right and, and right. so you 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 can't prejudge a congregation usually uh, until you get in there and worship and then they hope that they're they you know, you. hospitality team and everything, you know, makes you feel welcome. And, but, but, uh, you know, uh, I think there, there are challenges to that. Uh, uh, one of them is uh, oftentimes not, not always, there are, there are few kind of connections and oversight and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that, that kind of checks and balances sometimes. Right. And, and so, that's a, a possibility that might happen, but but you also have this. I mean, in in some ways, uh, much more generic sense of uh, this is Christianity <laughs> generally, right. and and usually tending more toward um, conservative, more evangelical uh, uh, theological understanding, uh, at least based on our surveys of non-denominational churches. Now, obviously, that's not true. There's also progressive ones, too. But, um, but, but yeah, you, you, you may lose a lot of the heritage or even, even some of the rituals. Uh, you know, most uh, non-denominational churches like revel in some ways in the fact that they can craft the worship that corresponds to who they are. And, right. but, but uh, as opposed to say, uh, maybe an Episcopal church that never can vary from the book of right. common prayer or something. But, um, but it, but it does diminish, I think the, the, the richness of what's possible, unless you have a creative person that's like eclectically pulling <laughs> different yeah. kinds of things together. It seems like there are some non-denoms, maybe at least in my neck of the woods, who are starting to pay a little bit more attention to like, like Advent, Lent. Do you think that's? Are you seeing that as I, well? I, I am seeing that. Uh, I'm seeing that both in non-denominational churches and and also in the evangelical hmm. denominational uh, congregations as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think some of that. Is is a is a good pendulum swing mm-hmm. back toward um, a, a sense of 
you know, orthodoxy and ritual. And, uh, you know, you, you also see evangelical and other young men (laughs) joining or the Orthodox church, right. Yeah. Uh, Which is a little mind boggling, (laughs) but, uh, but I understand the appeal. Um, you know, let me ask in a society that has no longer a single dominant culture, but, but many fragmented subcultures, Right. Uh, I think it's it's fascinating to me to be able to see the diversity of religious expressions because yeah. it really is matching some of this subcultural diversity. So let me ask this. It seems like, in my mind, what I've always heard is that non-denoms stereotypically are either like really either Baptist or Pentecostal. Like, is, is that <laughs> it's a bit broad brush, but is that somewhat fair? Well, At least that's the true. Tr- roots they come from does that make sense um i I, yeah i would say some baptist traditions but but i i I just tend to usually say they're broadly evangelical okay uh or or they lean more toward the spirit and they're Mm -hmm. generally uh pentecostal but but you know some of that Pentecostal came out of the charismatic movement in the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties and, and now doesn't really look like Pentecostalism. It's, it's more uh, kind of a charismatic of sorts. Okay. Uh, and increasingly, I think we're seeing both with some of the fracturing of the mainline denominations, but also just creative uh, younger clergy who are trying to craft uh, a religious spiritual space that appeals to younger generations mm-hmm. and doesn't echo their parents and grandparents reality that, that it's, it's really becoming, um, a, a, a pretty creative space, not tied to some of those heritages as it was probably 15, 20 years ago. Hmm. Let me, one tradition that I've been kind of intrigued on, intrigued about from the outside is the Anglican church. And I don't mean the Anglican church of Canada, but I mean like the Anglicans who kind of split off from the Episcopals and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like from what I've seen, they've done an interesting, what seems like a good job of balancing um, rich tradition and ritual with also some modern aesthetics that seems to be compelling to young people. And I'm just curious, a, is that an accurate observation and, and B might they have something to to teach or to to be a guide to to mainline traditions yeah um and many of those also tend toward <laughs> the middle or to the right of the right. theological spectrum right. right uh so but but i think you're right um the uh church of the apostles i think in in atlanta is certainly i think that's what the name of that church is uh, larger, uh, but but there's a whole host of them. Um, they they do walk a nice line uh, between the the ritual of the Episcopal Church, the uh, kind of mm-hmm. Anglican tradition, and 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 then bringing in some contemporary worship. And right. I, I, you also see it in um, some of the immigrant expressions within mm. 
within okay. the Anglican movement or or within uh, the Episcopal uh, Church, mm-hmm. um, where th- they still have the Book Common Prayer of sorts and and the high regard for the Eucharist and things like that to kind of keep them anchored, but they allow uh, cultural expressions that are not organ based or not, Mm -hmm. you know, 300 year old hymns kind of um, to, to bring in some kind of fresh uh, resonance with the contemporary reality. Um, I I mean, (laughs) I, I work with a lot of younger clergy in the main line and, mm-hmm. and constantly pushing them to just, you know, go and reinvent mm-hmm. uh, worship and, and reinvent what Christianity really needs to look like for younger generations. Cause uh, it's, it's pretty clear from our data that yeah. it's hasn't been working for the main line and increasingly it's not working so well for the evangelical conservative Protestants either. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our society is, is moving pretty significantly away from the, the social reality that created the congregations of the fifties and sixties and seventies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some groups have adopted some aspects of that. And that's where you get the megachurches and mm-hmm. the charismatic movement and some of this stuff. But but that continues because culture keeps shifting and the society keeps shifting. But but we're really slow to reinvent our religious forms and models, and 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 we need to. Um, there's no doubt about it. Let me ask this then. So I think this comes from Ted Smith, and I haven't had a chance to read his book, uh, The End of Theological Education, here on my stack of books to read. Yeah. But I, I heard this in another podcast from him, and he talked about the voluntary association being like the primary social model, if that's the correct word, of how congregations are organized basically since the American Revolution. Um, it seems like previous to that would have been the state church. I don't, I don't know how far. Yeah. What, would there have been a prior to? Like, like how far back would the state church go, essentially? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it, it it would probably go back to the Protestant Reformation, right? Okay. I mean, um, prior to that, it was a mono sure. uh, religion. Uh, I mean, obviously, the split between the Orthodox right. and, and Catholic, but but then it was the Catholic Church, right? Uh, or it was, you know, so uh, so Eden. Ted Smith. If I'm remembering correctly, from this conversation I listened to, made the point that, or at least as I interpreted it, that it's the voluntary association model that seems to be dying, not not what we'd theologically call the church. So the question is yeah, that yeah. I'm curious about, like, what is that new model that's going to be like the the social cohesion? And I'm wondering, like, it like is asset based community development. Like, there seems to be a lot of energy around that in some mainline. Um, Spheres like is that the new model? Like, do you know what the new model is going to be? Uh, I wish I did. Okay, <laughs> I'd write a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm of the mind that, um, as I said, hinted to you earlier that that 
really our society has fractured so much into uh, different subcultural realities mm-hmm. that, you know, a uh, cowboy church or right. biker church. Right. Or, uh, but these are all real things. I mean, that all of those. CrossFit have, church. Yeah. I mean, exactly. And, and some of, I, actually, some of our most creative young clergy here in, in New England have their traditional church that anchors them in the right. denomination, but then they also do CrossFit hmm. uh, ministry or they do uh, poetry slam mm-hmm. ministry that that actually functions very well for a younger mm-hmm. uh, community. I I I anticipate that there's not going to really be one dominant model. Hmm. Okay. Um, and 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 that's in part because right our our whole social fabric has shifted from small towns or mm-hmm. the competition between seven different congregations right. within that town to move to now this major metropolitan area that has the v- vast majority of our people in it. Um, and, and then that we play out to all these different subcultural, I mean, you know, you go mm-hmm. into a mall and look, and there's like 14 different stores that all sell jeans and almost all the jeans are the same. Right. But they're selling a brand yeah. and, and an identity uh, and maybe trying to sell it in a different way with different yeah. styling. And and I think in some sense, we're seeing that reflected in, in congregational life and how that's done, whether it's done with dinner church or bar church or, or some, uh, you know, kind of spiritual expression or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. But it is, I mean, we, we are in a period of, of significant change in our society. And, and while we're living through it, mm-hmm. who knows how long this is. But the, the technological changes that have taken place and the globalization kinds of things. But then to throw in the, the significant impact that, that the pandemic mm-hmm. has had. On on not just congregational life, because but but really on reshaping human nature and, right. and our nature of interacting. Uh, I mean, we're in our in our pandemic research, we're still seeing pretty significant impact by that traumatic event, hmm. <laughs> uh, both in the the congregational members and in the people who've left. And in in the clergy, and, yeah. And so, while many congregations have said, "Oh, well, the pandemic's over; we're moving on," right? They really haven't um, fully dealt with the influence of all of that yet. It, it, it I think it's going to take another decade, at least, to to sort all of this stuff out. Wow, wow. Uh, let's quite la- last question here before we take a break. So you mentioned like small towns, seven churches competing with one another, let's say for back in the days, right? The, the, uh, the bus route, did your church do that? Right. Right. The, the bus program, every Baptist church, right. The bus ministry, (laughs) you know, moving to cities now where people are driving 30, 40 minutes to go to church because there's a big 
mega church competing with each other. Um, but really, really these days, like it's the internet where churches are competing with each other across the globe, essentially. And maybe not in like in traditional, like let's get you to come to church, but it's like elevation and Bethel and these kind of churches producing their worship content that is the new latest hit or song or whatever. Um, Talk about how the internet is really shaping uh, churches and, and congregational dynamics. Right. Well, and, and certainly when you talk about Bethel and some others, right, the, the research that has been out that, you know, a vast number of congregations that are more contemporary that use like uh-huh. the work from uh, four yeah, or five Hill churches. Song. Right. right. I mean, uh, it's, it's as bad as the, the music scene uh, in, in contemporary society. Um you know, I, I honestly, I, I don't think we're yet <laughs> fully aware of of what effect all of this will have on congregational life. Sure. It, prior to the pandemic, um, there were still a relative handful of congregations that that were truly implementing technology. In, in the life of their congregation, right. whether, whether that was in worship or in the administration or in the, the publicity uh, of sorts, their evangelical outreach kind of things. Uh, and, and the pandemic was a, a real wake-up call, and, and it was really helpful for the congregations that had already started it. Um, what we're seeing now, though, is uh, many of those congregations, and it, it was it was nearly a hundred percent. While about seventy five percent are still doing hybrid worship forms and such, mm-hmm. when you look at all of the programs they do and all the other activities, most of those have retreated back to face to face realities. Uh, they might still be using it a little bit for adult education, might mm-hmm. be using it to have committee meetings, but pretty much everything else has kind of snapped back to where it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, but what hasn't changed <laughs> is that membership wants that option of being able to zoom in <laughs> or to watch the streaming. Mm-hmm. Or the the folks who never got reached, you know, the, who were homebound or whatever, uh, are now be able to, able to participate. But but they also have um, the challenge of how do you deliver the full expression of what a church is to those folks who are virtual? Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're willing to allow for talking head spectator right, right. participation, but that's not a robust congregational yeah. life. Uh, so I think where congregations, and this includes the megachurches as well, mm-hmm. uh, our, our challenge now is how do we deliver all those other aspects of congregational life to a virtual audience so mm-hmm. that it's a robust expression of Christianity and community and not just, you know, I'm, I'm watching televangelists, you know, uh, yeah. who are less good televangelists. Right. <laughs> well, so, I mean, it's, it, 
I mean, it remains to be seen the effect. Um, what one of the other effects, and then mm-hmm. I'll stop, is that those religious participants, even the ones that are sitting in your pews, mm-hmm. we're pretty sure are also viewing other congregations. They're also yeah. participating yeah. in others. We have a few studies or a few surveys we've done where we're asking uh, attenders, uh, where else do they worship? Do they have other home churches that they're okay. a part of? Yeah. And and what we're seeing is um, a pretty significant overlap between multiple hmm. congregations. Um, and that may have always existed, but we never asked those survey questions, but we are now. Interesting. And... Uh, I I think, you know, that that kind of constant sort of shopping around or getting my various needs met right in multiple congregations right. is is really the the future for sure. Yeah, and we need to we need to take a break here for sake of time, but like I'm just thinking this is probably like I'm probably an example like like I'll watch a Hillsong YouTube video, I'll listen to somebody else's sermon podcast, right? These are all examples, right? Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break here and we'll come back with some closing questions. We're back with Dr. Scott Thumma and uh, love this conversation here, which we had more time. So I'm, I'm springing these questions on you because you really have not seen them. Most people I send these questions to, but they're meant to be quick responses. So don't feel the, the need to go into into depth. But uh, and you, if you're Pope for a day, and you can take this as seriously or not as you'd like to. What might you want to do with that day? Well, uh, I'd have to say <laughs> stop some of this conflict. Sure. <laughs> I mean, we're in a pretty rough moment. Well, I'd be down with that. I would be down with that. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Well, Martin Luther. Uh, okay. I mean, he drank beer and he called his wife a, a ball and chain. <laughs> He's a character. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Well, I, yeah, yeesh, I can go so many different directions there. <laughs> sure. But, you know, I, I'm so immersed in doing pandemic research yeah. right now that yeah. I hope, I hope history remembers this as uh, a more interesting time uh, uh, understanding how congregations adapted to the pandemic than in the 1918 one, because we, we tried mm-hmm. to get some data from that and mm-hmm. had nothing. So, uh, but, oh, goodness. We're in a challenging time for sure. You know, it's interesting. I have a, I have a clergy friend who was at, a, at an old Disciples of Christ church here in Denver, and he actually was able to look back in some kind of her church record books and see that they closed for like three or four weeks in 1918. And that was the extent of the data he had, but still yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. I, we, I can look at some denominational data and you uh-huh. see uh, a, an impact over a year or two, but, but there's not a lot of richer sure. <laughs> uh, material. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you hope for the future of Christianity? And well, this might be challenging for you, a sociologist, right? I, I, I want it to change. <laughs> I, uh, I've, I've often said in my talks that, um, that every, every clergy person <laughs> needs to think about 
how is their institutional reality in, in their congregation uh, mm-hmm. changing? And it, yeah. if it's not changing, then it's dying. Right. And, um, you know, one of our key questions that we have in our surveys is, uh, is your congregation willing and open to change? Hmm. And that is so predictive of many other aspects of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's just have to remain flexible. And we saw this amazing two-year right. period right. where right. All, nearly every congregation made change. Yeah, and and now what we're seeing is the concrete starting to harden and settle, mm-hmm. and the clergy still want to continue to change, and the membership is, are like we've we've done all we can. We're not going to change anymore, and and that is just a death knell in some ways. Well, this is great stuff here. I really wish we had more time for a conversation, but uh, to honor your time and mine, let's wrap it there. But where can people find out more about your work and and connect with you if they want to do that? Yes. Yeah. Well, at the Hartford Institute uh, for Religion Research, we're uh, fixing up the website, but uh, hartfordinstitute.org. We also have a project uh, called Faith Communities Today, uh, faithcommunitiestoday.org, that has been going on for 20 plus years. And, and then our pandemic research is uh, covidreligionresearch.org. And uh, we will have in the next week or two uh, a great report on Latino congregations hmm. and then a report that we've just uh, finished doing on clergy health and wellness that wow. is um yeah uh, sobering <laughs> yeah I to bet. say the least i bet well thanks so much for your time i really appreciate the conversation i always leave folks with a word of peace so may god's peace be with you well thank you and and thanks for the invitation lauren this has been great thanks for joining us on the future christian podcast to learn more about lauren or the podcast visit future-christian.com one more thing before you go do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.